This is Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent, out, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I'm not an astrologer or astronomer or any of that, but I did a little research on the star of Bethlehem. It was not a star. You may have heard that before. Um, what... There's about a dozen theories or more on what the star of Bethlehem is. The most convincing I've heard was what was happening is Jupiter and Saturn were coming together in the sign of Pisces, which is a fish. That's one of the constellations. Jupiter and Saturn coming together in a sign of Pisces. It happens once every 794 years, and that's what the Magi saw. They didn't necessarily see a star. They saw this sign in the stars that clued them into some things. The, the Magi were from Babylon, and they were astrologers, and they most likely would have rubbed shoulders with Jewish astrologers. There's Jewish astrologers who would have been in Babylon. I don't know if you remember back in the 6th century B.C., God kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem. They were in exile in Babylon. He told, he told them they could go home. A lot of them stayed. Is that really basic? If I pull it down, will it make a difference so it's not up on my throat? Sorry about that. Is that better? Excellent. Better for me too. Um, so anyway, so these guys would have rubbed shoulders with each other professionally as astrologers. And the Babylonian astrologers would have known from the Jewish astrologers what they were looking for. That they were looking for this Messiah who was a warrior king who would come in and wipe out all of the bad guys and set up God's kingdom on the earth. And when these guys saw Jupiter which the Jews said that's God's star, and Saturn, which the Jews said that's the star of the Messiah, rising in the east, which means signifies birth, conjoined or coming together in this sign of Pisces, which stood for the house of the Hebrews, they would have concluded God's Messiah is being born in Judah because that's what all of these things would have said to them. Jupiter is God's star, Saturn is the star of the Messiah, and Pisces is the constellation for the house of the Hebrews, and the Hebrews lived in Judah. So they would have put all that stuff together, and that's why they went trekking for the Messiah. So they get to Herod, and they say, where is this king of the Jews? And he says, what are you talking about? He, he pulls in all of the Jewish people and says, the, the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment, and said, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem, and he says, we'll go find him. And so these magi go and find um Jesus, and that astronomical phenomenon happened in 7 B.C. 
um, and in 6 BC, three times between 7 and 6. Jesus was not born in zero, sorry. The guy who did the math messed up. He was born in 6 or 7 BC, not in zero, whatever that would be. So um, that did happen. You can go back and look at the charts, and you can see that Saturn and Jupiter and all that jazz happening um, in the spring. And he also wasn't born on December 25th. You already knew that. He was born sometime in the spring. So all of that's happening. The Magi recognized that a king was born. I think sometimes that's something that we miss. We focus so much on, and rightfully so, Christmas on baby Jesus. And that's what we, we sing and we say and we... Um, those are the images that are out there. And all of that is, it's baby Jesus. And he, yes, he was born a baby. But he was also born a king. And sometimes I think we miss that. The Magi didn't miss that. They got it. Jesus was a king. Herod got it. it remember we talked a little bit last week. He was so upset by this report from the Magi, he wiped out every male who was two years old and under, just in case any of them were the Messiah. He felt threatened by this king. And I would say he was inspired by Satan to do that. Revelation 12, you don't have to flip there. Um, There's this picture of this kind of cosmic battle going on, and uh, John sees a sign of a woman in heaven, and it says that the moon was under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars was on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. He swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. You get that. The dragon is Satan and the woman is Mary or Israel. And he's the dragon's waiting on this child who is Jesus to be born so he can kill him. He knew Jesus was a king also. The Magi got it. These wise men got it. Herod got it. Satan got it. The Jews didn't get it. These guys have been hanging around for hundreds of years waiting on this Messiah to be born. They had the Old Testament. They had all these prophecies. They were waiting, some would say, at least 400 years for this Messiah to be born. And these folks show up and say, he's born in Bethlehem, which was five miles away from Jerusalem. And as far as we can tell, nobody takes a walk to go see. You would, you would think if you had been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for this particular phenomenon to happen, and somebody says, it just happened down the road, you might at least get on a donkey and check it out. None of them did. As far as we can tell, nobody went. None of the Jews, none of the Jewish leaders went to see if, in fact, there was a Messiah that was born. They missed it. They missed the king. The king came, and they completely missed it. Because he didn't come in the way that they thought he would. They figured he was going to come in on a white horse with a sword in his hand, and he was going to wipe out a bunch of... He doesn't come as a baby in a manger or wherever. They didn't know where he was born. That's not how he comes. And so they dismissed it. And they missed the coming of their king. And sometimes I wonder if we miss the same thing. Sometimes we focus so much on maybe what Jesus does in our own life that we forget that he came as a king. This was um, Jennifer read uh, this earlier today. This is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's a very popular Christmas passage. It's a prophecy of a king. Look at the language. You've got 
the government will be on his shoulders. The increase of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. That's kingly language. And if you believe that prophecy is about Jesus, and if you believe Jesus has, in fact, already been born, then it stands to reason that you also believe he's established a kingdom or he was a failure. Those are your two choices. If those, what we just read and what's on every Hallmark Christmas card, if that's about Jesus, if he's the son that was to be born and you believe he has been born, then he is a king and he came to establish a kingdom or he failed and he didn't establish a kingdom. But that's what this thing says, Isaiah 9. He came to establish a kingdom. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, the earth receive her king. That's what we do. That's the reason Jesus came. I'm about to overwhelm you with information. And I'm sorry in advance for that, but we've got to get it or we're done. If we don't get that Jesus is a king who came to establish a kingdom, we can't really move forward individually or collectively as a people of God. Most of us will say Jesus is a king. We can get that theoretically. We may, Maybe he's some type of spiritual king. He says in John 18, his kingdom's not of this world. And we say, yeah, his kingdom's not really of this world. But I'll just say this. A king without a kingdom is just a guy with a funny hat. So if all we're willing to say is he's a king, well, what's he the king of? If he doesn't have a kingdom, he's just a guy wearing a crown. That doesn't do anything for anybody. But if he, I would submit that he is a king and he has a kingdom, and yes, it's not of this world, but it impacts every aspect of this world. Yes, his kingdom is from heaven, but Jesus came to usher it into the earth and it invades every aspect of the earth. Again, I'm about to overwhelm you with information, I'm afraid, but I think it's important. Matthew 3, 2, don't flip to any of these. Um, by the time you get there, I'll be on, on to the next one. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist's message. He was a guy who came before Jesus and prepared the way for Jesus. His message is summarized, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That word near means at hand or approaching. The kingdom of heaven, if you were to go read Matthew's gospel, you'll never see the phrase kingdom of God. You'll always see kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing as the kingdom of God. There were Jews sometimes didn't want to say the name of God, so they used a substitute word, and heaven was a substitute word. Kingdom of God equals kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it can mean two different things. It can either mean the rule or reign of God or the realm where God's rule and reign is exercised. And you just got to use your context clues. That's why you went to elementary school. So you can figure out what's what Jesus is talking about. There's some places, like in the Lord's Prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's a, those are parallel statements. And so in that prayer, he's praying for God's rule and his reign. There are other places, like uh, he tells a rich young ruler, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In that case, he's talking about the realm or the sphere where God's rule and reign is exercised. Where when the kingdom of God is used that way, you can substitute heaven, you can substitute eternity, you can substitute eternal life. All of those words mean the same thing. So the kingdom of God is either God's rule or reign, or it's the realm where this rule and reign is exercised. And you'll have to use your context clues to figure that out. Matthew 4.17, Jesus' message is summarized as this. Just like John's, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think that's eight words. Everything Jesus says is shrunk down to a bumper sticker. And it's not love God, and it's not love people, and it's not I came to forgive you of your sins, and it's not the devil is bad. It's repent for the kingdom of God is near. Out of every way to summarize Jesus' message, that there's your bumper sticker. Repent 
for the kingdom of God is near. If you don't know anything that Jesus said, know that. Because that's everything that he said. Then everything else that he said falls underneath that bumper sticker. In um, Matthew 4.23 and in 9.35, Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry. He says, He went about in their towns teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. That's a summary statement of Jesus' ministry, preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's what he did. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples on their first kind of missionary journey, their first foray in ministry without him, this is what he said to tell people. Tell them, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. When he sends out the 70 in Luke, that's the 12 plus these other guys, you know, and he sends them out on their first missionary journey, you know what he says? Tell them the kingdom of God is near. Every time he sent somebody out, that's what he said to tell them. That's what John said. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus told the 12 to say. That's what Jesus told the 70 said. You get the picture. It's important to him. That's the message. There's a, a place in Luke 4 where, where Jesus' disciples are trying to get him to hang around in this particular place and kind of do his stuff in this particular town. And Jesus says, no. I've got to go to the other towns in Galilee to preach the good news of the kingdom because that's why I was sent. Jesus says the reason I came was to preach the good news of the kingdom. You get it. That's it for him. That's the central tenet of his ministry. You can summarize Jesus' ministry in eight words. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's it. If we don't get that, we're done. We've, we've missed something major. We've missed his primary emphasis. We talked last week. One of the reasons we don't experience peace in our life is because our priorities and Jesus' priorities aren't aligned. We're going in one direction and he is going in the other, and that causes frustration for us. If we don't get that his priority is the kingdom, we're not going to experience peace in our life. There's a whole lot of stuff we're not going to experience because that's his priority. That's where he's headed. And unless we say, you know what, that's mine too, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it huge. So repent for the kingdom of God is near. The wonderful, yay, look outside. It doesn't look a whole lot like the kingdom of God is anywhere close. If this is the kingdom of God, then he might need another plan because this doesn't look a whole lot like anything that we would say is God's kingdom. This omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving God, this is the best he can do. Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And he ushered in God's kingdom. Okay, yay, I'll sign off on that. It doesn't look like he did a very good job. It doesn't look like anything has happened. And that was the Jews' biggest issue. What they were looking for was this defined, this dividing line in history. Everything's bad, boom, the day of the Lord, which is this awful day, and boom, and now everything is good. There's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was a king of Babylon. And he has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. Y'all remember who Daniel was, Daniel in the lion's den, all that. Friends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the guys who were thrown in the furnace. That was Daniel. He was a prophet, and he had kind of moved up the ranks in Babylon because God had gifted him. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he wants to know what it means. And none of his guys can tell him what it means. Actually, he doesn't tell them the dream. He says, y'all tell me my dream and then tell me what it means because I don't want you to just tell me what you think I want to hear, which is pretty tough. If anyone's ever asked you to tell you their dream, it's not an easy thing to do. So none of those guys can do it. And he's about to wipe out all these fellas. And Daniel says, wait, I can do it. Um, This is your dream. And he says, you know, the Lord has shown me all this. Here's the dream. It's a statue. The top of the statue is a shiny gold head. 
and then there's this silver chest, and then there's bronze stomach and thighs, and then iron legs and feet, and then the toes are clay. And then there's this rock cut out of a mountain that comes hurling towards this statue, hits it on the feet, and shatters the feet, and then everything else just turns to dust and is blown away. And Daniel says, this is what it means. The gold is you. That's the Babylonian empire. You're the gold head. And the silver, that's the empire to come after you. That was the Persian empire. The bronze is Alexander the Great. That's the Greek empire. And the iron is the Roman empire. And the clay is, people don't really know, they say that some, you can look at Revelation, it talks about these ten horns and all this jazz on top of a dragon's head. And they say the clay feet, that's this confederation of states that will come together in Europe. Blah, blah, blah. We've talked before, Revelation's a train wreck. So we're going to... Skip that. That's what's happening. And then this rock is the kingdom of God. It's cut out of a mountain that, not by human hands, and it destroys every other kingdom. And he says this in verse 44, In that time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it it itself will endure forever. And that's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for some decisive battle when all the kingdoms of this world would be defeated and the kingdom of God would be established fully and finally. Turn the page very clear. That's not what happened. And if you've ever read um, some of the parables, they're kind of confusing. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, the reason he's telling parables is to explain the mystery of the kingdom. And the mystery of the kingdom is this. It came in Jesus, but it didn't uproot society. It came, the the kingdom was ushered in through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but society continues on. And you see that. You live in that. This present evil age has continued chugging along even though Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. He didn't stop that train. It has continued to go. Some of the parables that you do know that are pretty... Familiar, the parable of the sower. Remember that? There's a guy sowing seed and some goes on, falls on a path and a bird's come and eat it and some falls on rocky ground and a plant comes up and then it gets hot and the plant dies. Some's in weedy ground and the plant comes up, choked out by the weeds. Some lands on good ground and then it produces a huge harvest. The point of that parable is this. The kingdom of God, that's the seed, that's the gospel of the kingdom, is being preached. And its success is determined by the responsiveness of the people who hear it. The Jews didn't get that. They thought the kingdom of God would come with military might. And Jesus says, no, the way it's come is it's successful as you respond to it. And if you don't respond to it, well, then the kingdom is less successful. The parable of the weeds is right after that parable. There's a guy, he sows good seed in the field, and then he sleeps. He goes to sleep and his enemy sows weeds in the field and they all come up. And he's got some guys that come out and say, you want to pick out the weeds? And he says, no, because if you pick out the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat also. Just wait till the end. Wait till harvest time and then do it. The point of that parable is the kingdom of God is being sown in the earth, but it has not uprooted society. In the end, God will separate. But until the end, we're all in this thing together. People who accept and reject the kingdom, we still live together. The parable of the mustard seed, you know that? The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed, starts out really small, ends up the biggest tree in the garden. The point, the kingdom of God that Jesus brought starts off, it looks very insignificant. 
at the end of the day, it will be the rock that destroys every kingdom. And every other kingdom will bow to it. It will dominate all of the universe. But not now. The parable of the yeast or the leaven, you remember that? A little bit of yeast works through a whole batch of dough. Again, it looks like the kingdom's not doing anything. Just like if you have a little bit of yeast and a big old thing of dough, you can't tell it's doing anything. Now, it will. In time, it will. It will affect the whole thing. And in time, the kingdom of God will affect all of creation. It's working right now. You just have to have eyes to see it. That's what Jesus is saying through these parables. What you are looking for is not happening. But it doesn't mean that the kingdom has not come. It just hasn't come the way you thought. And that's for all of us. That's where we live right now. We live in this time where the kingdom of God has come if you believe Jesus is the king and he was born, which you do. Then the kingdom has come. But we would all say, well, we still live in a pretty sorry time. There's still a lot of evil. It seems like the bad guy wins at least as often as the good guys win. What's going on? And those, that's the point of all these parables. Yes, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come decisively yet. It's just like, it's the mustard seed. It's the yeast. It's working. It's just, we're not there yet. In the end, end with a capital E, when Jesus does come on a white horse and he does have a sword and his robe is bloody from all of the people he's white, when that happens, then we'll be separated. And you'll either be wheat and you'll be brought into God's barn or you'll be weeds and you'll be tied up and thrown into a fire. And those are the choices. And whatever happens will be based on your response. That's the parable of the sower. If you have a hard heart, you're out. Shallow heart, rocky heart, you're not going to make it. If you have a receptive heart, then the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom will find root. And you'll be good. That's, that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying... That is what is happening. So you get the picture. There's a king. His name is Jesus. He brought in a kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. We don't experience it fully yet, but we will later. But right now, we can experience it partially. So what does that mean for us? Who cares? Is that just theory and you know something that looks nice on a diagram or something? What does that mean for us? I think the question is this. Are you living in the kingdom of God or not? Simple. Are you in or are you out? If this kingdom is the mustard seed and eventually it will dominate every kingdom in the universe, what side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of this rock that destroys every other kingdom or do you want to be in the statue that gets destroyed and blown away? You have to choose. So are you in or are you out? John 3.3 says this, Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. None of us were born citizens of the kingdom. That was a huge mistake the Jews made. They thought that because they were Jews, they were in. And, and Jesus said, no. God can make Jews out of rocks. That's not what gets you in. What gets you in is to be born again. We've talked about that's to repent of your sins, to recognize, you know what? I've screwed up. God set a standard that I can't meet. And then to ask God to help you meet it. I'm going to commit, ask God to forgive you, fill you, and live your life following Jesus. That's it. That's what gets you in. Doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. Doesn't matter who your parents was. I don't care what you've done for the community. None of that stuff. I don't care if you read your Bible, pray every None of that matters. What matters is, have you been born again? If you haven't, then you're not in the kingdom by default. You can't be because there's only one way in, and it's to be born again. Many of you have been, and you'd say, well, okay, I'm good. 
And I would say, well, are you living out the values of the kingdom? If you're a citizen of the kingdom, are you living out the values of the kingdom in your life? And that's easy to say this to and hard to actually live out on a daily basis because the values of the kingdom run against the values of this world. Satan doesn't create, he just corrupts. And so what he's done is he's taken the values of the kingdom and he's corrupted them. And the values of this world run cross-grain with the values of the kingdom. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Our world, it's hard for a poor man to do just about anything. The values go against one another. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. We say, grow up. Be independent. Be self-sufficient. Make your own way. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Children say, I can't. Help me. Those things run cross to each other. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. The world says, win at all costs. Winning is everything. You're either first or you're a loser. Those values go against one another. You can't do both. What values are you living out in your life? Again, it's easy to say, I'm going to live out the values of the kingdom. It's difficult I think, to actually practice that. There's a weird verse in Matthew 11. Jesus says the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and men lay hold of it forcefully or men enter it forcefully. What that means is the kingdom is advancing. It's the leaven. It's the kingdom is advancing. Um, There's a parable in Mark 4 about this growing seed. It says a farmer plants a seed and no matter what he does, that seed is going to grow. What that means is the power for the expansion of it, God grows it. Not us. Um, I'm going to read this because I can't remember all of it. This is what the New Testament teaches about the kingdom of God. God gives the kingdom to people. We never give it to one another. God can take the kingdom away from people. We can't take it from each other. People enter the kingdom but are never said to build it. Are never said to build it. People receive the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, possess the kingdom, but we are never said to establish it. People can reject the kingdom but can't destroy it. People can look for the kingdom, expect the kingdom, and pray for the kingdom to come, but we can't bring it. The kingdom is coming because the king has come. And there's not really a whole lot we can do about that. So our choices are get in or get out. If we want in, we have to be born again. And then the second part of that verse, that's the kingdom is advancing forcefully. The second part of that verse, and men or women lay hold of it forcefully. That... The kingdom of God requires a radical response from us. You can't passively join the kingdom because it's going this way and the kingdom of this world is going this way. You can't ride both trains. Not for long, at least. You can't. They're moving in two different directions. To be, to live out the values of the kingdom requires a radical response. You've read some of the stuff. You've heard some of the stuff Jesus says. It's better to enter life. You know, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Because it's better to enter the kingdom. It's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to go to hell. Same thing, cut off your hand, cut off your foot if those things cause you to sin. If anyone doesn't hate his parents or hate his children, they can't enter the kingdom. He makes these really radical statements because that's how important the kingdom is. And that's the type of response it requires from us. Which isn't like, oh, I can't do it. It's just the reality of the situation. Do you want to live out the values of the kingdom of God in your life in Marietta in 2008 with two or three kids and two or three mortgage payments and whatever else you've got? Yes or no? 
If the answer is yes, it's going to require a radical response on your part. And if the answer is no, you're rolling the dice. Because his kingdom is advancing. And his kingdom is coming. And the end is coming. We said before, the end is closer today than it was yesterday just because it's today. And it will be closer tomorrow than it was than it is today. The end is coming. And in the end, this kingdom will be the only thing that stands. And it's not a God hates everything else. It's that the kingdom's the only thing that's, that was created to last forever. And that's, I think, where you want to be. You want to be a citizen of the thing that's going to last forever because you're going to live forever. One place or the other. So you might as well live in the place that God has created for you. It's going to require a radical response. And my question to you is, will you respond? Will you respond to the demands of the kingdom and say, yes, I want to live out those values in my life? We're going to spend some time um, next year. That sounds like a long way away. Next year talking about so we can put it off. We're good at procrastinating. We'll talk about it next year. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to start in January, looking at the values of the kingdom and what does it mean to actually live those values out in our life in Marietta, Cobb County, with all of the junk going on that we have going on. But leading up to that, my question for you is, one, are you a citizen of the kingdom? Have you been born again? If the answer is no, fix it. You can fix it today. You can be born again today. And two, are you willing to respond to this gospel? Are you willing to say, yeah, I'm willing to lay hold forcefully of the kingdom of God? Bo, you guys can come back. We'll have ministry teams in the back if you have any needs. Uh, anything you want prayer for, there'll be some guys in the back who can pray for you. Uh, we'll worship for a bit, and then I'll come back and, and we'll close out. Jesus, I do thank you that you're a king. Uh,